Turn with me, if you will, to John, John 15. John 15. Let's pray. Father, as we read these words that you have given your Son, and as we contemplate them, Father, I ask that you would stir our hearts. You would open our eyes and our ears to the word that you have given us. And Lord, that we may be able to go away from here knowing more of what it is that you have done for us. Father, I pray specifically for those words that we read in the Westminster Confession that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to know him forever. Lord, may your word this day enable us to understand more of the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of your love for us that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abide in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. We meet this portion of scripture at the point where Jesus is giving his final, the seventh of the seven I am sayings that's recorded in John. If you, if you read through the I am sayings in John, I'm, I'm really thankful to God that, that John was able to capture this in the way that it does, because if we, if we read through the rest of the Gospels, we don't quite get the sense of what John is saying, even though it's within the passages in the other Gospels. But God, John brings such a, a, a light to what he's saying in these I am sayings. It's wonderful. Let me just remind you of what those are. I am the bread of life. John 6.33 I am the light of the world. John 8.12 I am the door. John 10.9 I am the good shepherd. John 10.11-14 I am the resurrection and the life. John 11:25. I am the way, the truth and the life. John 14:6. And then this final one. I am the true vine. John 15 verse 1. Now these are very often referred to as the I am sayings of Jesus. The I am sayings, but I want to say to you this morning that these are Four more than just mere sayings. 
These are not just metaphorical or symbolic sayings. They're not just analogies. They're not just parables. They're not just a way that Jesus was trying to use to express something that he was saying about himself. These are absolute statements that Christ is making about his person and about his work that he came to do. Statements of of such gravity that we, we can't even go into the depth of it today. But we're going to have a glimpse at what Jesus is saying to us. But these are not just statements either. You know, there are some people that would say that Jesus never taught doctrine. He was just a man who loved, went about doing miracles, and that he was an example for us to follow. You know, we need to try and attain to the life that Jesus lived, and then we will be a good person. If you ever meet anybody like that, point them to these scriptures. Because Jesus is being absolutely doctrinal within these seven statements about who he was and about the work that he had come to do. It's full of doctrine. It's one of the most important doctrines that we can read in Scripture. Paul pulls from this. We, We preach from this. Christ, from his own mouth, teaches what salvation and the gospel is truly about. But it's more than, more than just doctrine. And it's two words that give the emphasis to what I want to say to you this morning. And those words are, I am. I am. This, this reaches the depths that, that, that's unimaginable. For, for Jesus is saying the same thing that God was saying to Moses in Exodus. He's using the words ego, am I. I am. Which if you read the the Septuagint version of Exodus, it is the same phrase that is being used. I am who I am. Christ in this portion is stating to, to all those who are listening to him, I am God. He was declaring his deity. He was making it known that he was God incarnate upon the earth. These I am sayings, full of absolute power. Just imagine it. Standing there in the crowd and Jesus is expressing these things to to people who actually understood what he was saying. This was... A man who was declaring that the omnipotent, the all-powerful, the magnificent, the all-sufficient one was actually the things that he was proclaiming to be in these sayings. The God of heaven and earth is the bread of life. The God of heaven and earth is the light of the world. The God of heaven and earth is the door. The God of heaven and earth is the good shepherd. The God of heaven and earth is the resurrection and the life. The God of heaven and earth is the way, the truth, and the life. And the God of heaven and earth is the true vine. It brings such 
gravity to what he's saying. I don't know what it does to you, but it, it, it creates such an importance in these things for me in my life that I must stand up and take note of what it is that he's actually teaching us. The main emphasis of what we're going to be looking at today is outside of these things, as Jesus said himself, we can do nothing. Absolutely nothing. The gospel, dear friends, is not about me. It's not about you. It's about what God has come and done for us in the life, the work, the death, the resurrection, the promise that's in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Nothing else. Christ was sent to, to reveal God. We read that in John 1. That the word became flesh. Came to dwell amongst us for a while. Tabernacled, set his tent up. That he may reveal God. But through these sayings, he not only reveals God, he brings God to the people. He makes everything that he's saying within these sayings available to his people. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, all these things are applied to every believer's life. That is the gravity of what we're looking at here today. This is God making the child of God into what he needs to be through the Christ, our Lord and our Saviour. We could stop there, couldn't we? That's such a, a wonderful feast in itself to know that the God of heaven and earth has lowered himself to such a degree that he came to this earth not only to die on a cross, but to become every single aspect that we need as children of God. It's mind-blowing. Here we are, sinful creatures, lost, receiving nothing but the wrath of God outside of Christ. And yet from before the foundation of the world, God has put a plan in place and he reveals that plan. He makes it happen. And we're sitting here today as a beneficiary of what he has done. Astounding. But I want us to focus on this morning, this seventh, I am saying. I am the true vine. And you're going to really have to stick to me like glue as we go through this this morning because it's, there's, a, there's a lot in this. And it's, you know, looking into the Word of God, it tells us that we're, that we're only peering into, uh, into a glass dimly. We, can, we can't get out what we need to understand from our mouths. We can't always express what it is that we've, that's going on in the inside. But the Word of God, it gives us... It gives us what we need. By faith, it gives us what we need to understand the things of God. So bear with me this morning, as we've got a lot to go through. So as we've just discussed, 
Christ is, is not merely making a comparison with himself to a vine. He is stating, I am the true vine. This is more than just a verbal picture to his relationship with the people. He is stating that he is their vine. Saying to his disciples, I am your vine. It is me who is your vine. And it's important that we recognize this. He says, I am the true vine. So when we look at how he says this, it's, it's obvious that he is making a comparison to something. When he says, I am the true vine, it must mean that there is another vine. But he is the true one. And it's that, that for a few minutes that I want us to, to just focus on. What is, what is Christ saying about this other vine when he's talking about himself? If you want to have a really good study on the vine, go to the Thompson Chain reference or something of a, a similar nature and it, it'll start you at Psalm 80. Psalm 80. And we're going to, we're going to turn there just for a moment. Psalm 80, verses 8 to 11. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathens and planted it. Thou preparedest room before it and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. Sent out her boughs into the sea, and her branches unto the river. God compares Israel to a vine. The scripture tells us that, that God has called Israel out of Egypt, taken that vine, and he planted it in the promised land. That is what God did. This is the first vine that we read about in the Bible, and it's important that we, that we understand where this came from. We start with Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and then we move through where the tribes of Israel are all gathered together. The seed of Abraham, many nations, the tribes, they end up in Egypt with Joseph. And that's the point where God brings them out, as we're talking about here in Psalm 80. This vine that God has planted himself, the seed that he took out of Abraham, he takes out of Egypt, takes them through the Red Sea of the waters, into the wilderness for 40 years, and then through Joshua into the promised land. And it's there that they start to grow. They, inher they inherit all of those promised lands. It's split up. They have all the different parts. And this, this vine grows and grows and grows. You know, Linda made the point when, when she was talking about this, when she was reading through the, the chronological Bible, of how few there were in Egypt to how many there were. Like more than the sand of the sea. 
It's amazing when you read through the story. And this is what God did with the vine that he called Israel. Remember, it was Jacob that was first called Israel as he was going back to Bethel. He called him first Israel there, changed his name. And then from then on, this vine was taken forward. But let's turn to Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 5. Isaiah 5, 1 to 5. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vine, my very well-beloved out of a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered it out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes and now O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah judge I pray you betwixt me and my vineyard what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it wherefore when I looked that it should bring forth grapes brought it forth wild grapes and now go to I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard I will take away the hedge therefore And it shall be eaten up and break down the wall thereof. And it shall be trodden down. And we we see this type of language throughout the whole of the New Testament. This vine that God had planted himself in this wonderful promised land. Bearing nothing but wild grapes. Fruit that shouldn't have been there. Fruit that didn't belong of the vine that God had planted. Why? Because it was made up of sinful men. And that's all that this vine could keep producing. Although God had put it there, this, this was nothing to do with the, an error of God or his lack. This was to do with the people who made up that vine. Rotten to the core, selfish, looking after their own wants and their own needs. A bit like us. That's what this vine was made of. Jeremiah 2.21 says, Yet I have planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. God had, God had planted it right. How then have you turned into a degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? So when Jesus is talking about the true vine, this is what he's comparing himself to. God in Christ has provided an excellent vine. That is what the word true means in this sense. It's an excellent vine. It's, it's of the choicest vine. And as we read through John 15, it will bear good fruit. No doubt about it. It will bear fruit. J.C. Ryle, in his expository thoughts in the Gospel, says that Lightfoot said this, Hitherto, Israel had been the vine into which everyone that would worship the true God must be grafted. That's what the Old Testament was all about. Anyone and everyone who wanted to worship God properly came to Israel, joined in the feasts, 
the sacrifices, the washings, they were grafted in. They joined in to this vine that was called Israel. That's in the Old Testament. But then he says, but from henceforth they were to be planted into the profession of Christ. This is what the true vine is all about. It's no longer about feasts, no longer about people, no longer about a nation that's full of errors, no longer about sacrifices, but it's about the one true vine, the Christ that came, that was planted, that grew, that has wisdom, knowledge, who was God that gave out everything that was needed to make the fruit appear. I want us also to note that everything in the Old Testament is a shadow of what Christ is. Everything. You may have heard it said time and time again that Christ is written into and is all over the Old Testament. And he is everywhere. In every jot and tittle, in every word, in every sentence, you find Christ. Everything we read in the Old Testament is a shadow. And Christ at his incarnation, when God became man, he was the embodiment and the fulfillment of everything that we read. Everything. Nothing's left out. Let's take Ezekiel 17 for for an example. Verses 22 to 24. Verse 22 says this, Thus saith the Lord God, I will also take of the highest branches of the high cedar, and will set it. I will crop off from the top of his, of his growing tree, twigs, a tender one, and I will plant it upon a high mountain and eminent. Now, if you read the context of the whole of Ezekiel 17, it's talking about how Israel has been carried away and how the king is, is, is being captured by the king of Babylon. And they're looking to all of these people to give them everything that they need. They're looking to the world. But God says in verse 22, I will, I will snip off the top of these branches and I will plant them on a mountain and he will be eminent and he will plant it. And this again is a picture of Christ. This is what God has done. This is what Israel was all about. Israel was not brought about to be the salvation of me and you. It was brought about in order that the Christ would come from the seed of Abraham. That's why Israel's there. Christ in the vine is the true Israel. He is the true Israel. Now, I'm not belittling Israel. Israel has a huge history. Israel is a very important place. But sometimes it can be given the eminence. The scripture clearly tells us That Christ is the true Israel. Christ in his incarnation 
Christ, the eternal Son of God. Christ, the second person of the Godhead, was the embodiment and the fulfillment of Israel in the flesh. All of it. Look at the sacrifices. Look at the feasts. Look at everything that I've just said about Israel, how it came about. And then look at the life of Christ. Born in Bethlehem. Taken to Egypt. Brought back out of Egypt. Went through the waters of baptism. Straight into 40 days in the wilderness. Died. Like Moses on the hill. But he didn't stay there. He rose again and he entered into the promised land in order that me and you would be able to follow him. It's all a shadow. It's all a type. And God has been so gracious to us in giving us everything that's in this book. So let's not only see the literal, but let's see the spiritual that God is bringing forth out of these things that we read in the Old Testament. Christ came that his people would have life and have life in abundance. Not a life of rituals, not a life of trying to be something that we can't be, but he lived it. He died it. He rose again and now he shares it with all of his people. Scripture makes it clear that this is a covenantal promise. That, that word, I am, it was, the, it was the name that God gave to the people of Israel to call him by. There was, there was no other name like it. There were other words like Adonai, Elohim. But they had other meanings. But Jehovah, Yahweh, it meant God. God alone, all-sufficient, none like him. And he made that covenant with that people and the covenants to us through Christ. And we're going to go through some more to see how this works out. Christ said, my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't come to bring an earthly kingdom. He didn't come to create a nation. He didn't come to make people great he came to call a holy nation he came to create a royal priesthood he came to gather from every tribe from every tongue from every people from every nation and that was the covenant promise that we see God making to Abraham right from the very start. It's an eternal promise. This I am, it didn't just start when Christ came and spoke it. This is something that's always been in place. Let's move over to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Ephesians 1, 3 to 5. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Notice where the blessings are. They're in heavenly places. They're not of the earth. In Christ. These blessings are in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. This vine, this, this, this I am the vine, is, it's an eternal thing. It's a, it's a covenant that God made between himself, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before anything was created. He was always the vine. He didn't just become the vine when he was born. He didn't just become the vine when he was speaking to his disciples. He was the vine before the very foundation of the world. And we can't get our heads around this. We have to, we have to join Paul when he says, Oh, the depths. The riches, how unfathomable, how unsearchable are these things. But the Bible makes it clear, the scripture makes it clear that Christ was with the Father before the world began. Before Abraham was, I am. The Word was with God. And he was all of these things. He was was the eternal bread, the eternal light. The eternal door, the eternal shepherd, the eternal resurrection, the eternal way, the truth and the life, the eternal vine. He was all of these things before he even put foot on this earth. And that's a massive statement. It's huge. It's not something I can convey to you. It's only something that the the spirit can give us through faith. But it, it, it gives us such a an understanding of how we have to rely on Christ. That he is, was, and always will be these things. But it also shows us that he, he was also the, the antitype and the archetype of, of everything that was to come. And those words are, just mean that... that he preceded everything else and he was the overall type of everything that comes. So we've already said that Israel was a type of Christ, but Christ is the overall type. It's mind-boggling. It really is. But he was these things before anything else existed, before the foundation of the earth. So let's go back to Abraham. Genesis 17, 1 to 5. Genesis 17, 1 to 5. And when Abraham, not Abraham, Abraham, was 90 years old and 9, so 99, the Lord appeared to Abraham. And said unto him, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face 
And God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abraham, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. Abraham, one man. We're going right back in time now, right back. One man. And God says to this one man who's 99, his wife was in the 90s, well past bearing children. And he says to him, you'll be the father of many nations. Further on, he says, your children will be more than the number of the sand on the sea. More than the stars in the sky. That's a phenomenal statement. I'm 47 this year. And I don't, my childbearing days are done. Abraham was 99 and this was only starting. I was reading the Chronological Bible, and just as an aside, if, if you haven't done this or haven't got one or haven't started it, I recommend this highly. It has, it, it's transformed my Bible reading. It's fantastic. 1 Kings 4 tells us for the first time that Judah and Israel were more than the sand in the sea. And as you're reading it through, you you don't tend to you grasp this sometimes when you're reading it when you just come across the way you're reading it through the normal Bible but as you're doing it chronologically and you've still got it in your mind of what, what, what God said to Abraham and then you get to this bit in, in Solomon saying well this has happened this has come about and just another little aside what, what did What did God say to to Moses in Numbers? He says, "Do do not number all the tribes. Do not number them at all. You can number most of them, but don't number the Levites. Now, why why did he say that? We'll come to that in a minute. But David, in his wisdom... When he was tempted by Satan, it tells us in Chronicles and in 2 Samuel, they decided to number the whole of Israel, all of them, every single one. He counted them up. Why did he do that? I think it's a couple of reasons. I think one was pride. He looked at how many people were there and he thought, this is my kingdom. I want to know how many people are within this kingdom. This is mine. God has given this me. But it also shows a lack of faith. God had said to Abraham right at the very beginning, I will make the nations out of you more than the stars in the sky, more than the grains of sand. I will do that. And then he says to Moses, don't number them. So the reason he did that was so that the people of Israel would trust him. Not, not things aren't there for no reason. So David had a lack of trust. He had a lack of faith. And it just proves the point 
of everything that we're saying this morning. That when it comes down to man, when everything's left to man, we make a mess of it because we're not God. We have the lack of faith. We have a lack of an ability to be what it was that God planted in the first place. So back to the story in Genesis. Genesis 22, 18, God said to Abraham, And in thy seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In thy seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now Abraham got a grasp of this and he understood what God was actually saying. And Paul expounds it for us. If we turn to Galatians 3, 16... Paul tells us this. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, which is Christ. Verses 26 to 29 read like this. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. This was the promise that God was making to Abraham right at the very beginning. In thy seed, in Christ, shall all the nations of the world be blessed. This was not just about one small country, that's miles away from us. The promise was always from the very foundation of the world about Christ coming and bringing a people to himself. From every tribe, every tongue. Jews, Greeks, barbarians, Scythians, male, female, Jew, Greek. All of them. He would bring to himself the vine, the true Israel. And everyone that is in him belongs to that Israel. It gives us a little bit of an understanding, really, a bit of an insight on what Paul meant when he said, all Israel will be saved. We can't grasp it. But he wasn't just referring to a, a little country. If you read it in his context, it comes after the bit about talking about when all the Gentiles have come in. This is about what Christ has come to do. And we must get a hold of it. He is the true vine. He is everything that we need. And we have to focus on that. We've heard it earlier. This is our focal point. Not the world out there. Not the coronavirus. Not our jobs. Not our money. Not our bank balances. Not our faith. It's all about Christ and what he came and did. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection. It's the only way. It's the only truth. The only life, the only vine, the only light, the only bread, the only gate, the only door, the only shepherd. It all relies on him. Nothing on us. So how, how do we apply this? 
How do we take what we've just heard, all, the, all that wonderful and, and amazing stuff that we've, that we've read, and how do we apply that now to us today? When Christ said that I am the vine, you are the branches. You are the branches. And as we read through John 15, we find that there's two types of branch. There's one which bears no fruit. And the husbandman, the farmer, comes and cuts it off. And all it's fit for is putting on the fire, getting your hands nice and warm. And then there's the other branch, which bears fruit. And as it's tended by the husbandman, as, as, it's, as it's purged, as, as all that uncleanliness is stripped away, it bears fruit and more fruit and more fruit. They're the two types of branches. And it tells us that both of these branches are in Christ. That's a bit baffling. Very baffling. But as we look deeper at it, the branch that doesn't bear any fruit, it can't be really connected to the vine. I'm not really a gardener. Not great with green things. But I've got a little plant. I don't know what it is. It might even be a shrub, a tree, I don't know. I'll have to get Google to tell me. But it's at the back of the garden. Every, every year I notice the same thing. Through the winter... It looks dead. It's, it's just a stick. Its, it's branches are just brown and rotten. But as it comes through spring and into the summer, it starts budding. And the, the bark or whatever it is that's covering it starts to peel off and the greenness starts coming out. And now it's flowering and the shoots are coming out because it's connected to the roots if I was to take a Stanley knife and chop one of those branches so that it's hanging off, that branch would soon die. Even though it's still slightly connected to the branch, to the vine. So these branches that don't bear any fruit, all they have really is an association with Christ. We, we can be any of two of these branches. By the fact that you and me are here today means that one way or another we're associating ourselves with Christ. We're here for a purpose. We're not just coming to fill a couple of hours on a Sunday morning. But there's a difference between being associated and being in Christ and being one who abides in Christ. A huge difference. The one who abides in Christ the life is engaged in it. It takes them up. They're totally rooted and grounded and, and in, that branch is connected into the vine and everything that that vine has, everything we've just been talking about flows through it by the power of the Holy Spirit into that branch that is abiding. And that's why it bears fruit. And that's where we need to come from this morning. Which branch are you? Which branch am I? Have you just got a, an association with Christ? Is this something that 
you've done throughout the, the whole of your life? Is this something that you've learned through your parents and, and, and come to a bit of an intellectual understanding? And you think, actually, this, does, this sounds good. I'll, I'll have a bit of this. But then when persecution comes, when trial comes, when this world starts to wrap up and we start to see more and more of the, of the, of the persecution that comes in against the Christians... Are you going to stand? Because only the branches that abide in Christ will remain. I listened to something by by John MacArthur the other day and he says, as the days start to unfold, as we come closer to the return of Christ, those true branches will be seen. For all those who are, are professing to be Christians, what point will they be? Why, why will they want to keep on declaring something that only brings them trial and persecution? They won't. They'll fall off. There'll be nothing more than Judas. There'll be nothing more than those in John 6. There'll be nothing more than those in Hebrews 6. All those that just had an association with him. Apostates, they're called. They spurt out the mouth. They have no substance. No relationship. They're not connected to the vine. They've not been born again. These are what the true branches are, friends. There are people who have been born again by the Spirit of God. They are people who are connected by that wonderful thing that God has done through Christ. And it's amazing. To know that those branches were once dead in trespasses and sins. That those branches were once children of wrath. They're exactly the same as that shrub that sits at the back of my garden. To look at it, dead. But when the life of Christ comes, when the vine comes, is connected to those branches. Life, and life in all of its fullness, is given. And it won't be taken away. Christ makes that very clear. All that the Father gives me, none will will be taken. Not one. So when you see people slipping away from their faith in this life, from their profession... Don't blame God. They were never there in the first place. It's impossible. Once you've tasted, you're not going to turn away. You may have your ups and downs. You may be going through the winter and there's no, there's no flower, there's no bud. You may be having struggles, you may be having turmoils. But spring will come. Summer, and the fruit will abound again. The husbandmen will continue stripping away. But remember, and it's vital that we remember this, this is what the the whole of this morning has been about. It's only in Christ. It's not of works that any man should boast. It's all in 
Christ. And it's all been done from before the foundation of the earth. It's all the plan that God has put together with his Trinitarian self. He's brought it about. He's given the ability for us to receive it. And he applies it to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, fruit. Makes it very clear, Jesus does. Those who abide in me will bear fruit. Not might, if we have a good harvest this year, will bear fruit. This is a this is a tool that God uses to bring us assurance. But it also brings us a challenge. How does your life measure up? Because if you're abiding, there will be fruit. It's impossible for there not to be. And if you don't see that, there's a problem. If you don't see that fruit growing on the end of your life, it might only be that small little berry that's coming at the start of the season. But it's there. If you don't see any of that, you need to get down on your knees and pray. You need to call upon the name of the Lord. You need to ask him to come into your life and change you. It's possible that you've not even been born again. But if you can notice even the blossom, if you can see that in your life, then take encouragement because God is at work and he will accomplish it. He is the author and he is the finisher of our faith. Too many people put their belief and their, their position with God on their faith. But in other words, they're just saying, it's my works. God is the one that brings the faith. It's back to Abraham again. It was imputed to him. The, Bible's, the Bible, the, the, the King James Version says accredited. It means imputed. It's the same thing that Christ did with his righteousness. Through the power of the gospel, God has shown forth his way of righteousness. And it comes from faith to faith. And faith is a gift of God. So if you see it in your life, take encouragement. Be blessed because you are part of the vine. Amen.